The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. His mother was a goddess, his father a magician. He was the real-life king of an ancient Mesopotamian city who became the first major character in the history of literature. His name was Gilgamesh, and his epic tale was told for thousands of years. But is it worth reading today? We'll find out. I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Welcome to episode one of the History of Literature. I'm glad you decided to come back, especially if you listen to episode zero, where I pointed out that I'm a failure in everything. <laughs> I think I describe myself as a guy in a ditch with a towel around his head. Maybe, maybe not the best foot to put forward. I can think of better ways to introduce a host. Anyway, moving on. This is episode one, The Epic of Gilgamesh. It's the oldest work of literature we have. 4,000 years old. We have it today in a nice translation by Stephen Mitchell. It's a beautiful little book that I'm holding in my hand. It's one of those high-quality books with a very smooth cover. It's got rich blue and gold colors. Inside, the pages are thick, creamy. The font is nice, very easy to read. That really gets you going, holding a book like that, especially if you're like me. You love books, you love literature, although, as I explained in episode zero, I have my doubts about literature's power today. That brings me to my first big question. Why read this thing? It's a dusty old story. It's kind of a tired idea. An epic hero? So what? Really? Right? <laughs> There's monsters. They're going to chop off their head with an axe. On a quest. We can get that elsewhere. We can get something much more fresh and modern with The Hobbit. Iron Man, There's plenty of movies where they go on quests, where we have action heroes who can take us to another place or another time. The movie, frankly, is cheaper. Probably, this book is $15. Of 
course, you get to own it, you get to own the artifact, put it on your shelf. But is it really better than a movie? Is it worth your time? I saw a blurb on one edition, not this one. Blurb said, it's as good as an action thriller. Come on. That's, <laughs> have you been to an action thriller? Your heart is pounding. You get that adrenaline rush. This is a quest where they have swords and axes. This is a quest where they walk. There's no tech here. There's no advanced weapons. He's the king of a city. But what's a city in ancient Mesopotamia? In the Fertile Crescent? What? <laughs> 10,000 people? Maybe? That's barely a town today. Of course, that feeds into our bigger question that we're looking at throughout this series. Is literature dying? Okay. Let's look at it this way. I'm going to make the case for this book. I'll give you five things that I discovered while I was reading it. Let's see if I can do this in 30 minutes. See if I'll give you everything you need about this book in 30 minutes. My five things. And then at the end, we'll see. Is reading the book worth your time? Let's move to thing number one. It's the oldest work of literature we have. It's older than the Old Testament. That's, for me, that's a big deal. Look, I'm fascinated by early humans. Have you seen those artist recreations of the earliest humans? I'm talking 50,000 years ago, maybe more. They make those portraits of them and you can look into their eyes. Or Neanderthals. I'm fascinated by them too. They were walking around the planet just like us. They shared the planet with Homo sapiens. What were those creatures thinking? We see the cave paintings. We see handprints. They're drawings of animals and humans. They made designs. They were creative. We have a figurine, an ivory figurine that's 30,000 years old. And it shows the body of a human with a lion's head. Why? What was going on in their minds? Was that a god of theirs? Was that a piece of humor? Was it part of their storytelling? Or is it just to show off? Why did they do it? What was going on? We know that they could think they were as smart and capable as us. They had language and tools. They had needles for sewing. They had ships. We have a evidence, physical evidence of a disabled person being carried around for years by others. It's beautifully human. They must have been accompanied by human emotions, loyalty, gratitude, guilt. What was it like? What was it like to live then and to love and to hate and to fear? And then, of course, we have agriculture. Once that was invented, people could specialize their tasks. They lived in larger communities. They were more rooted to a particular place. Now we'll fast forward to the Fertile Crescent, where they had flooding. Cities grew. With cities came leaders. Wars broke out among rival groups. 
Now we're getting close to the time of Gilgamesh. We know a lot of physical evidence about these people and their world, but what did they think? How did they feel about that world? Were they angry or bitter? Were they full of joy, terrified, at peace? All we can do is guess until the development of writing. Writing changed everything. Now we could know. All those stories orally told, they're no longer lost. And the insight into psychology, it's recorded, preserved, there for us to discover. It's the closest thing we have to a time machine, these scraps of papyrus. First, they were just affairs of the state. That's the first writing. Taxes, grain inventory, lists of kings, including Gilgamesh, by the way. This is a real person that we're talking about. For a thousand years, this is all they wrote, or it's all that survived. And then finally, a thousand years after writing was invented, someone wrote down this story, etched it into soft clay with the point of a reed, and left it in the sun to dry. And literature began. Now we can know. We can know how they loved and lived and dreamed. Ancient works like the Epic of Gilgamesh tell us what those humans valued, the codes they lived by, what they thought was just and unjust. It's a much deeper psychological insight than any other artifacts we have, including the other forms of art. This took place before the Bible. Think about the justice and values and codes that we've inherited from the Old Testament. Can you erase the Bible's influence on us? Maybe by looking at some remote societies that don't have the Bible? But things travel. Ideas travel. It's not clear to me that even today, even in the most remote societies, that you could say that they weren't somehow influenced by the stories of the Bible. But Gilgamesh came before. It's pre-Eden, so to speak, if you can let yourself believe that. Here's what's fascinating. Storytelling does not really change that much. That's part of the first thing that I found. Although it's so old, stories are just like today. It's a quest story. You tell me if this could be a story today. Gilgamesh is a warrior king who's restless. He's oppressing his people. He goes on adventures. He has a rival who comes to be his best friend. And together they conquer obstacles and meet setbacks. And eventually Gilgamesh embarks on a journey. After This is after the friend dies and Gilgamesh is seeking immortality because of his grief. He starts out by seeking the advice of a wise man. Eventually, he finds the secret of immortality, which he loses, and he returns to his city a changed leader who understands that his role is to help his people. If he has any claimed immortality at all, it's through his good works and the monuments he can build and the impact he can have on his people, the positive impact that will outlive him. I've seen a hundred movies that have a plot like that, and so have you. That's not that different from today. That's number one. 
our storytelling is essential. We learn that from the oldest literature we have. The basics of narrative are still very much a part of us, timeless and intrinsic. Read for the differences. Read for the similarities. Number two, power. This is a book that talks about power. Epics are about nations. That's where, they're ten, that's where they tend to be found. Nations rising. Why is that so interesting? For, especially for listeners in the ancient world. I think it's because they looked around and said, why are we in charge? Or why are we oppressed? Why are they in charge? It's endlessly interesting. If you're living in some small city, working for, for who? For the leader of your town? For the leader of the next town over? Why are you so afraid of them? How did you wind up on top? How did the, the leadership class become the leadership class? That's what epic stories are about. And the leader, of course, in the case of Gilgamesh, the leader was because he was the most powerful. He was the best warrior, the strongest, the bravest, the boldest. But what happens then? You put him in charge. He's restless. He has energy. He oppresses his people. There's a, a bit of psychology here that's interesting to me. Don't we see this today? We have boxers, heavyweight fighters. We praise them. They become maybe some kid from the streets. Becomes a millionaire. Why? Because he can beat people up. He can pound people's into submission. And then what? As if one day he has a stadium full of people cheering, chanting his name, screaming, calling for blood. He's given a mansion all because of his brute force. And then what? He goes home. He has to live. Here he's got this, this power that he's been encouraged to develop and use. Everything he has, everything good in his life came from that power. And now he goes home. Is it any wonder that these boxers have problems with domestic violence or they get in bar fights or they just don't know how to live during peacetime? They're pulled in two directions at once. That's what's happening to Gilgamesh. He's, in char- he's put in charge of a whole city because he was the strongest warrior. But now he's oppressing the people. He assumes that every bride is his. The people are getting angry. They have to ask the gods to intervene. Don't we see this situation today? Isn't that what power does to leaders today too? We had a president who said, it's not illegal if the president does it. It's crazy. It's a, cra- it's a crazy idea. Then again, I've never been put in charge of the Justice Department, given the power to pardon people. The FBI, I've never had the head of the FBI and the CIA and the military. I've never had all of those people report to me. I've never been in charge of the executive branch. The nation's leading law enforcement figure. We had a secretary of state who said, what's the use of having this wonderful military if you never get to use it? 
But that's our view of peace. It's an interim for war. When you have a military like this, when you have a power, you have a personal power, sometimes the need to use it becomes overwhelming. It's an interesting dilemma. Watching him wrestle with it is interesting. I found myself caring about Gilgamesh because of that, but also about the oppressed people because I'm interested in the psychology of leaders in the way power transforms them and the way the rest of us have to deal with that, the way we have to live under it. That's number two. Number three, passion. I told you that this was pre-Eden. What does that mean? There's no fallen woman. Think about that. Eve, poor Eve. Did she do anything wrong, really? What was her sin? What was her crime? And what are we all paying for? Everyone is a sinner. Why? Everyone is ashamed of their body. That being naked is something to be ashamed of. And sex. These are some of them. <laughs> we have to live in shame of those things. Why? It's not that way here. That's, that's, you don't see that in Gilgamesh. It's one of the most important roles in the narrative is played by an erotic priestess. She's a follower of the love goddess. She's sent out. So there's a double. So when the God, let me back up. When the people ask the gods to intervene, the gods respond by sending a double, a wild man who lives down by the animals and he's there to scare Gilgamesh. He's as strong as Gilgamesh. There to teach Gilgamesh some lessons in humility. Of course, the people are terrified, so they go to Gilgamesh because the Gilgamesh is there to protect them from people like this wild man. And Gilgamesh sends out an erotic priestess. Sends her down. She's supposed to teach the wild man the ways of humans. And the, the means by which she'll do that is erotic love. An erotic priestess. Sex is not full of sinfulness and shame. Here's, this shows you how pervasive the Bible is. For years, when this was translated, they translated erotic priestess as prostitute. It was as if our society could not fathom a woman who celebrated sex and passion. But in this story, sex is mysterious and powerful and spiritual. It's described explicitly. Okay, it's not, not pornographic, but it's more explicit than you would probably think. It's refreshing. It's not all tangled up in sin and morality. It's about love and humanity. Number four, a surprise guest. So Gilgamesh fights monsters. He loses his friend. And then he sets forth to find immortality. He needs to seek the advice of a wise man. So he goes to find him. He lives at the top of a mountain which is where wise men live. That's where hermits like to live. There's room for reflection up there. Insight. Close to the heavens. 
This wise man has another reason for living up there, because he is Noah, the sole survivor of a great flood. (laughs) He has another name, but come on, it's Noah. How many sole survivors of a great flood can there have been? And Noah, well, (laughs) we know why he's living on the mountain, right? Surviving a great flood tends to give one a preference for high ground. So that's a great surprise to see Noah living up there. Gives you more to think about, and he's just what you would hope for in a cameo appearance. It's just like uh, seeing an old beloved character 30 years later. What's he been up to? You see him now with gray hair, gray beard. Think Alec Guinness or Morgan Freeman. And Noah is funny. He has a twinkle in his eye. And he's outraged by Gilgamesh, who is just as dumb as all humans, struggling against death. He tells Gilgamesh, you can't even stay awake. You're looking for immortality. You can't beat sleep, let alone death. Noah and his wife are surprisingly funny. Who knew? Who knew that this book, 4,000 years old, would have moments of subtlety and humor that would be just as good as anything we could have today. Let me read you a passage, see what you think. This is where Gilgamesh has arrived and Noah is telling him, why should you be immortal, you among anyone else? Of all these humans, why would the gods give you immortality? He says, suggests first pass this test. Just stay awake for seven days. Prevail against sleep, and perhaps you will prevail against death. The poem continues. So Gilgamesh sat down against a wall to begin the test. The moment he sat down, sleep swirled over him like a fog. (laughs) I love that. Is that perfect? Here he is. This hero, what do we expect? I was surprised. What do we expect from the narrative of a hero? That he'll battle against sleep? That he'll stay awake for four days, five days, six days? We want our heroes to be heroic, don't we? Here he's not. The moment he sat down, sleep swirled over him like a fog because that's what humans do. You climb to the top of a mountain. How late? How long are you actually going to stay awake? Probably not long. So Noah, continuing now, Noah said to his wife, look at this fellow. He wanted to live forever, but the very moment he sat down, sleep swirled over him like a fog. His wife said, touch him on the shoulder, wake him, let him depart and go back safely to his own land by the gate he came through. (laughs) This part is great. Noah, he has another name, but I'm calling him Noah. Noah said, All men are liars. When he wakes up, watch how he tries to deceive us. So bake a loaf for each day he sleeps. Put them in a row beside him and make a mark on the wall for every loaf. She baked the loaves and put them beside him. She made a mark for each day he slept. The first loaf was rock hard. The second loaf was dried out like leather. The third had shrunk. The fourth had a whitish covering. The fifth was spotted with mold. The sixth was stale. The seventh loaf 
was still on the coals when he reached out and touched him. Gilgamesh woke with a start and said, I was almost falling asleep when I felt your touch. <laughs> now look, this isn't the most exciting passage. It's not the most revealing. There are passages in here about courage, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be brave, what it means to be a friend, what it means to be a lover, what it means to be a former lover, how we treat one another. But I like this passage. I like this moment where it goes straight to the heart of what it really means to be human. We try to stay awake, but we can't. We fall asleep, sleep for seven days, and then wake up and say, oh, I was almost falling asleep. How many kids have you seen do that? Right? Oh, I wasn't asleep. I'm still awake. So then... Noah points him toward the loaves and says, look at these. Look at these marks. We have evidence, Gilgamesh. You've been sleeping for seven days. <laughs> and Gilgamesh's response, Gilgamesh cried out, what shall I do? Where shall I go now? Death has caught me. It lurks in my bedroom and everywhere I look, everywhere I turn, there is only death. And again, we see something very human about Gilgamesh. It's a very charming main character to be this terrified of death. Aren't we all? Isn't that the human condition? Is that we're more intelligent than animals? By far, clearly. We've conquered the world. It was starting in ancient Mesopotamia. They must have seen how they had tamed the world in a way that no other rival creatures could or ever had. And yet, we also are aware of our own death. We know that our time is limited. That is the central human issue. And here we are, tackling it in the oldest piece of literature we have. Brings me to number five. This was completely unexpected, frankly. Didn't think that a book 4,000 years old would make me laugh out loud. It's a beautiful, miraculous book. One more point I wanted to bring up, sleep. Remember the, the challenge to sleep that Noah gives to Gilgamesh? Tells him, you can't even prevail against sleep. This comes back. Gilgamesh does find the plant of immortality. He has to swim to the bottom of the ocean to get it. Once he retrieves it, he resurfaces, straggles his way back to shore, falls asleep, and a serpent comes to take the plant away. <laughs> Sorry, humanity. We almost had it. Enjoy your graves. And it was a serpent, just like the great flood. Of course, we'll see the serpent in the Bible again, right there in the Garden of Eden. But think about their world. The Fertile Crescent. Flooding means everything. Can give you everything. Gives you all the food. Gives you a, a bounteous harvest. Lets you live a, a life of comfort and luxury, even. But it can also take it away. There's not enough flood. 
you starve, famine. If there's too much flooding, your house is on stilts. Everything's destroyed. That's why it's there. Is it any wonder that a that flooding, a great flood, is a sign of angry gods, both in this story and in the Bible? And obviously, the serpent was the creepiest thing around. Storytellers reach for it. Once again, both in this book and in the Old Testament, nothing creeped out the listeners like serpents, the way they crawl around on their bellies their sickening way. So the serpent steals it because Gilgamesh has fallen asleep, just as he had in the test with Noah. We've already seen this foreshadowed, that he could not stay awake. It's a neat reversal. Once again, Hollywood could do no better than this. And the ending is very Hollywood too. He comes back, looks at the city walls he built. You can almost see the camera panning across the walls. Starts at the beginning and the end with the city walls. We can understand what a king does, how he leaves his mark. And Gilgamesh has learned his lesson. Life is not about personal glory. He's a warrior king. Does he achieve immortality? Well, since I just told this story on a podcast 4,000 years later, I guess it's working out for him so far. Is this book worth your time? Look, I'm not going to pretend it's as exciting as Iron Man or Ant-Man or whatever the latest comic book movie is. We're in an era of comic book movies. Not my favorite, I recognize a lot of people do enjoy them. But you know what? Comic movies can get tiresome. The entertainment, escape, that's not all there is. That's not all we can get. You have a glorious mind. We tell stories. That's what humans do. That's how we got to where we are. There's a great book called Sapiens by the awful Yuval, sorry, the author Yuval Harari. He talks about how humans have been able to live in large groups thanks to fiction, fictive devices, he calls them, myths we share, enable us to cooperate, enable us to work together. In order to do that, we have to tell stories to each other. We have to believe in things in a way that animals can't. That's why they don't have groups as large as ours talking about advanced forms of life now, primates, not ants, obviously. They have their own little storytelling they must do. <laughs> Primitive stories that enable them to latch limbs and form a floating raft of millions of creatures to survive a flooding river. That's not the fictive devices I'm talking about. I'm talking about believing things like corporations or nations. Those are all fiction. They don't exist in nature. Those are fictive devices we tell each other. We describe things to each other with things like that. We can invent our common mythologies. Stories and storytelling are essential. We don't just passively receive them. 
overwhelmed by sound and color. We engage. That happens when you read. It happened for me as I read this one, this story. So let's say in the next two years, you'll watch about eight comic book movies. That's my estimate. That's the average. You'll see one or two on a plane, a couple at the theater. Your kids will drag you to one or your dorm mates or whoever you have in your life who drags you to things. It'll be on at a hotel. Maybe you'll running the channels and you stop on one. Eight in two years. It'll happen. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it will happen. But instead of eight, maybe watch seven. And with the extra time, read Gilgamesh instead. Is literature dying? Maybe. I still haven't decided. But is it dead? Maybe not yet. Episode one, let's sell some fish. You can get Gilgamesh in the Stephen Mitchell translation. I'll have a post to that on historyofliterature.com. Be careful. You could read other translations too. Some of them may be good. I like Stephen Mitchell's the best. That's the best I've seen. But be very careful if you get the wrong one. Uh, I don't think you'll enjoy the book at all. Uh, what else? JackWilson.com is another place where you can find out more about me, about the project. That's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson.com. We'll be back next time. Next episode is the Hebrew Bible. We'll look at the Old Testament. That'll be episode two. Also, mentioned this before, I'll mention it again. We have another show that we're launching, the Restless Mind Show. It's going to be in the same feed One feed shall rule them all. Don't ask. That's just how we're doing it. You subscribe to this one, you get that one, and vice versa. So please like us on iTunes, share the link, tell all your friends and cyber acquaintances about the history of literature. I still need you. Let's fill all the seats on this magical mystery bus. (laughs) Or whatever it is. I think I called it a walk through the sewer last time. Marketing may not be my strength. I'm Jack Wilson. We'll see you next time on The History of Literature. (laughs) ¶¶